0: In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Um, studio number call in 310 you can follow me on twitter or instagram or like my page on facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded then each week to my soundcloud page and podcast on spotify and apple podcasts uh, let's get to the books of the week so i'm actually going to be doing two on tonight's show playing a little bit of catch up but the book for This week, that I'll talk about on next week's show, is Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD by Eli R. Lebowitz, Breaking Free of Child Anxiety and OCD, a scientifically proven program for parents. And a caller a few weeks back um, introduced me to Dr. Lebowitz and his program. I didn't know about it, and so after speaking with her, I... Um, looked into it and saw that there's a book and wanted to learn more about it myself. So, looking forward to reading this book and sharing it with you next week. So, the first of the two books that I'll be talking about tonight is Yes to Life by Viktor Frankl. Yes to Life in Spite of Everything. And so, as you may be well aware, Uh, Viktor Frankl has written many books, but one of his most famous books, which really is one of the most famous books, period, especially anything related to um, psychology, psychiatry, mental health, is Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Last week on the show, I thought this book was written after that, but actually, uh, this book is based on a few lectures that he gave less than a year after he was liberated from the concentration camp. So uh, this was... I think he'd written the manuscript for Man's Man's Search for Meaning, but he gave these lectures, those three lectures, or as a series of lectures. They were divided into three in this book, at least, um, uh, before Man's Search for Meaning was released in that in between time. So, um, obviously, a heavy, heavy book because he still does discuss his experience or parts of his experiences in the concentration camps and what he and others went through but also as uh, you experience in man's search for meaning very inspiring and uplifting and as the title says yes to life in spite of everything and so that title has even more meaning when you think of someone like Viktor Frankl along with sadly millions of others who experienced the concentration camps to still say yes to life in spite of going through everything that they went through that he went through is quite remarkable and so i'm, I'm glad i read this book because um I w- i've been very inspired by his book man search for meaning read that several times and i thought it would be nice to read other books of his and there's definitely that same theme of meaning and finding meaning in life and what that even means throughout the book and i did want to share some um well, not necessarily excerpts, but some of them are quotes from the book and then sharing some of my thoughts um, on them. So one that I, I thought was really interesting when you talk about happiness. And so I've always felt that meaning and purpose should be our goals, fulfillment much more than um, happiness. Although sometimes we'll think of happiness as the goal. And of course, many people have that thought as well, that we shouldn't be focused on happiness but he says that happiness should not must not and can never be a goal but only an outcome and so we see that when people they try to be happy and research has actually proven this to be true he said this maybe i guess this is in the mid 1940s but we do see that research has found that people who make happiness a goal that i want to be happy and i'm trying to be happy they tend to be the least happy or they tend not to be happy because when we try to force happiness or think that that's how i'm supposed to be it doesn't work and, and the way i think of it is sometimes we think of happiness in this way of feeling good in a moment but if we just drive our life based on feeling good in the moment or look more towards those things you actually don't end up with a long-term happiness and fulfillment and he actually shares a parable by uh soren kierkegaard where he says that the door to happiness opens outward, meaning that anyone who tries to open it inward, bring it in, um, they can't get to it, so you have to open it out. And also we can think that that could mean that happiness comes from connecting with others, serving with others, relating to the world. And so I really liked that. And so uh, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the things that really stuck with me is that uh, Viktor Frankl says that often people are looking for the meaning of life and they think of it in a way like a question like what's the meaning of life as if it has one answer and i know in that book he says something along the lines that it's not a question we ask of life but a question that life asks of us what is your meaning of life what uh, what do you find meaningful or how do you create meaning in your life and uh, i loved how he he uses this analogy to show how when we think of the meaning of life in this simplified way of one thing, he gave this really nice analogy of a chess master. And so he said, imagine asking uh, the chess master, and now master, please tell me, which chess move do you think is the best? Um, so it's like saying, what's the best chess move, where he's saying there really isn't a overall best chess move. There might be a best chess move based on a certain board configuration, a, current, a certain Uh, part of the game or relating to the game. And similarly in our lives, it's not that there's just one type of meaning or one meaning we should be seeking or one way of getting to that meaning, but that it's something that we have to respond to our life um, based on whatever that moment asks of us. That's where we find meaning or where the meaning is. So I really like that analogy, uh, you know, thinking that we can just find it in some easy way okay if i do this that's meaning of life and if i keep doing that my life will be meaningful but it's it's more complex than that it's all it's also more individualized than in that um there was some you know he talks about fate in the book uh, also and that you know fate we can call it different things luck chance destiny um but he's sharing this notion that there are things that are out of our control so we try to respond to our life the best that we can but we can't control everything there are some things that are out of our control and of course someone like him who had to experience going through the concentration camps obviously that was not something he in any way created or could control he had to learn to live through it and with it but there was no way he could choose that or he would he would of course choose differently and he had to accept that fate At least for that time and so he says it very succinctly here either we change our fate if possible or we willingly accept it if necessary so either we change our fate if possible or we willingly accept it if necessary and i thought that was really a great way of succinctly succinctly capturing this this powerful message um also related in the serenity prayer where it's that we um change the things we can and accept the things that we can't but then also have the wisdom to know the difference when is it something that i should just learn how to accept and deal with and when is it something where i can and should intervene and have the responsibility to do something about it so i really loved that either we change our fate if possible or we willingly accept it if necessary Um, and related to responsibility he shares that that's a big part of being human even he boils down being human to another succinct sentence being human is nothing other than being conscious and being responsible so experiencing that consciousness and then being responsible so again uh, responsibility is not just one thing it's whatever the moment or also our roles let's say you're a parent you're a husband or wife Um, what is your responsibility overall as a role but also moment to moment so we we find that meaning in in those moments of life also related to meaning in life um, he shares something about how we leave our impact and so um, how we will remain in this world we can't live forever there is obviously this wanting to live forever but of course we cannot and then also there's this notion i've shared it actually in proust's book marcel proust's book the fugitive that there was this um this notion of sharing how we can be so consumed with how we will be remembered by people a century after our death and how silly that can be when we consider we won't be around to experience it and so in some ways there's a similar theme here of looking at what survives us so Nothing of our biological existence survives, as he says. Um, Nothing of it survives, and yet how much remains? What remains of it, what will remain of us, what can outlast us, is what we have achieved during our existence that continues to have an effect, transcending us and extending beyond us. So we leave our effect in this way, by the impact that we have. So I, I... like to say don't focus on your legacy as in your name but focus on the impact that you leave and so you let's say give loving kindness to your children and that will remain in them and will affect how they live and how they treat others and how they impact the world and that continues so that that way the legacy will continue the legacy of your impact now no one will be able to remember or there won't be a remembrance of What you did in that loving kindness, especially let's say generations down the line, but it still leaves that impact. And so I think that's where our focus should be Um, rather than as we can sometimes get caught up in our name being remembered or how people remember us. You won't be here to enjoy how people talk or don't talk about you. I think the better thing is to focus on the impact you actually have and hoping that that uh, continues. And so he shares in also explaining what gives life meaning a few times in the book. And of course, when I say that, it's a few times in these lectures, he says that um, human beings are able to give meaning to their existence in three different ways. So um, those, those ways, firstly, by doing something, by acting, by creating, by bringing a work into being. That's the first one. Secondly, by experiencing something, nature, art, or loving people. So in those experiences, um, even he shares a story of, imagine being in a concert hall and the most beautiful symphony is playing, or your favorite symphony, and this part of it happens where you, you feel something, uh, a chill or goosebumps or you know chill down your spine, and if someone somehow were able to ask you, um, is life meaningful, and you would, he said you would likely say. Just this moment alone made my life meaningful. So experiencing nature, art, or loving people is the second, and then the third one, he says, and thirdly human beings are able to find meaning even where finding value in life is not possible possible for them in either the first or the second way, namely precisely when they take a stance toward the unalterable, faded, inevitable, and unavoidable limitation of their possibilities how they adapt to this limitation, react toward it, how they accept this fate. And so this is a theme also that comes up in Man's Search for Meaning, and he discusses it here, and it goes back to that notion of fate, that there are things that are out of your control. And when we have a fate that is out of our control and is something that takes away our possibility to create or enjoy meaning in those other ways, now it is about how we make or how we respond to this Suffering. And he does talk in Man's Search for Meaning and also in this book, these lectures, about the meaning of suffering or how suffering can actually be meaningful. This doesn't mean to impose suffering on ourselves to feel some kind of meaning, but that inevitable suffering that can come about in life. Uh, In Man's Search for Meaning, he shares a story of how he meets with this, uh, I believe he's a physician who uh, he lost his wife a few years earlier and he's very depressed and despondent and he comes and meets with Dr. Frankel and he's himself a doctor. He says, you know, I can prescribe myself any medication, so I'm not here for that. And I don't know if you can help me because what I'm dealing with is I've lost my wife and it's made me incredibly depressed. And so Dr. Frankel shares with him something to try to give meaning to his suffering. He says, um, you know you're very heartbroken. Imagine if it was your wife. If you had gone first, how do you think your wife would have felt? And he says, "Oh, she would have been devastated and heartbroken and gone through all this pain." And he says, "Well, you can think that by you outliving her, that she died first. You saved her from that suffering. So this pain, this suffering you're going through, in a way, is um, you can give meaning to it and recognize in it. It's preventing her from having had to bear that suffering. And so." Uh, it could seem paradoxical that our, our suffering could have meaning, um, but there is ways that we can understand it and respond to it in a way that is meaningful. To give a, a simple example, if you have a someone burn your arm with a rod, um, that would not seem meaningful in any way or just hurtful. But if I told you you put your arm in front of your child's arm so that your arm got burned and not your child's arm, you might feel that that, meaning, that pain still painful but you'd almost in a way love that suffering knowing that it prevented your child from being hurt so uh, he shares many examples of this of ways that we can find some kind of meaning even in our suffering those things that we cannot control he shares the the quote from nietzsche which is also a a quote that he uh, brings up often in man's search for meaning i think a few times at least which is, whoever has a why to live can bear almost any how. And actually, I think he used that in that book so well that often I've heard people attribute the quote to um, Viktor Frankl, but he says it's from Nietzsche himself. Whoever has a why to live can bear almost any how. And this is something that he experienced in the concentration camp, seeing that often it made it easier, or the people who were able to survive the concentration camps weren't necessarily stronger but this sense of meaning of something to live for after the concentration camp might have helped them. And of course, not to simplify it, then if you had meaning, you would survive because still most of them likely had meaning and things they wanted to um, survive after the camps. But uh, he did find that this was a very valuable um, notion, this having this sense of meaning made people able to, to survive. Um, let's see we're at a commercial break and there's definitely things i want to talk about uh, this book and i do have the other book but i will have the third segment so let's go to a commercial break now and after the break i'll continue discussing yes to life by victor frankel welcome back continuing the discussion on the book yes to life in spite of everything by victor e frankel a uh, very powerful book very inspiring book like man search for meaning different but similar themes about what finding meaning what meaning is the experience of being in a concentration camp I'm um, also how every life has value and for us to find that there's actually um early in the book he talks a lot about suicide and his own experience even trying to prevent suicide amongst uh, college students when they were getting their entrance i think it was some kind of entrance exam scores it actually reminded me of Uh, Although I have not lived in Iran, but Konkur, where people I've heard would be very stressed when the results came out. And so he was sharing how often they would experience, unfortunately, many students committing suicide around that time. And he'd come up with some program to help reduce that in the first year he had done that program. Actually, they didn't have any suicides amongst the students that were in that program. So um, it was obviously very effective. And so meaning is something that he emphasized uh, unlike or yeah, unlike Adler, who was talking about power being uh, what people are searching for, he was saying that uh, man searches for meaning. And so that's the title of that book, of course, Man's Search for Meaning. But uh, there's a great story that I'd heard once, and I'm glad I heard his own telling of that story. And I wanted to share that with you because I thought it was quite remarkable. Um, what he experienced. So, one of the lectures, it appears, he begins with this story, which seems like he's giving some kind of a historical account of people close to the city of Munich, about 50 kilometers away from Munich, in a small town called Landsberg, and they are marching. And so, it is you see that it's members of a concentration camp in Koffering and they are being marched and he says it's not really so much that they were walking because he first says they were walking as they were hobbling because they were facing um of course very being very hungry having their legs swollen by something called um hunger edema or edema i think it is hunger edema um so they could barely support their own weight weighing probably around 40 kilograms each so they're dealing with all these incredible physical hardships and he shares as he does elsewhere in the book, that what are these men thinking about? Well, he says they're just thinking about that one meal of the day that they would get, which was some soup, and just this hope that maybe in that day in their soup, there would be a potato. Sometimes there would be um, a potato in that broth if they were lucky. And so then he shares that one of the men, um, he thought that these types of thoughts were too pointless And so, actually, let me just read read this from you. So, read this for you. So he's saying that these are these men marching or barely hobbling to go work in a field to create a munitions um, factory or munitions station. And so he says, then one of the men felt that these thoughts were somehow too pointless, and he tried to rise. He tried rise above them and think other thoughts, more decent human concerns, but he was not quite able to do it. Then he used the trick. He tried to distance himself from this whole agonizing life, to get beyond it by looking at it, as they say, from a higher vantage point or from the viewpoint of the future in the sense of a future theoretical observation. And what did he do? He imagined that he was standing before a lectern at a Viennese adult education college and giving a lecture and it would be about what he was currently experiencing in his mind he gave a lecture entitled psychology of the concentration camp if you had looked more closely at that man in that group you would have noticed that he had sewn into his coat and his trousers small scraps of linen on which a number was visible one one nine one zero four and if you had looked through the dachau camp records you would have found that beside this number was written the name of the camp inmate Frankel Victor so here he's sharing the story of himself and I remember hearing it that they were marching through the snow but here he is recounting it of course we'll take these words as as more legitimate but that they were marching maybe it was cold so maybe it was in the snow this time too or in this uh, recounting of the story and so he was so weak and in pain and trying to just continue and He just felt like what he was thinking about was so pointless and he was suffering so much that he thought what I can do is try to distance myself from what I'm going through. So try to uh, remove myself from my suffering. And this is something that could sometimes help us. For example, let's say uh, you go through something very painful. You can imagine yourself watching yourself going through this painful experience. And sometimes that distancing can be a little bit helpful for us to feel a little bit the pain is not as extreme and we might even be able to see the bigger picture that this will be temporary and things will change and so it can be actually a practical tool or valuable tool. Uh, in some ways we can think of it as a different form of or actually the opposite of being mindful sometimes of course overall we want to be more mindful but um, as is often the case when we have Uh, some type of advice it could be a little bit too extreme where we think we should always be very very mindful all the time but there actually can be something as too mindful or moments where it's better not to be mindful of what you're going through at a moment and so in this type of an experience that he was having it probably is better to be able to check out a bit and not necessarily be experiencing all of that pain and suffering and so what he did was that he imagined himself giving a lecture at a school in Vienna about the psychology of the concentration camp. And that then he gave the lecture in his head, he started to give that lecture. So now he was, again, removing himself, it was opposite of being in the moment in that way, going into this speech, he he would be giving to this school in Vienna. And then as he says, now for the first time, I would like to really give that lecture in this real hall of this Vienna adult education college, the lecture that this man had given in his mind at that time. So then he is now giving the lecture and the rest of this chapter is this lecture about the psychology of the concentration camp. And it's really quite remarkable. Um, Now, someone might call that Manifesting, but to me it was just the visualization that he had that then became a a reality. Um, He also had to, I'm sure, do a lot to make it a reality. Um, Of course, surviving the camps, but then to prepare and then give this lecture. But it's really quite a remarkable story of how he was able to, um, you know, it's a very meta type of story. He's imagining, giving this lecture about the psychology of concentration camps. Uh, then he ends up doing it and then he shares the story about what he did when he was imagining giving this lecture. So I thought that was quite a remarkable and really inspiring story of how he was in that moment able to remove himself from his pain and suffering in some way or get some kind of meaning or inspiration thinking about giving this lecture. And that in a way distracted him but likely also inspired him as well. And so he does share some things about what people go through. Of course, not any two people will go through it exactly the same, um, but what that experience is like in a concentration camp. And later in this lecture, he also talked about uh, human suffering. I've mentioned is a theme that comes up a lot, but he shared something about comparing people's pain. And I thought that was interesting and meaningful for me. Um, I just think it's an interesting thought, but also as a therapist, very often, clients will be sharing about their life about their past about their parents and then stop themselves and think oh well really it's not that bad i I should actually be grateful or you know other people have it so much worse than me my parents actually weren't that bad or my past wasn't that bad and you know i get it there's something about that perspective that can be meaningful another way of removing ourselves from the situation there could be something in that actually um a funny story for me was that i was reading this book and the day i finished it i went and did uh, a stand up comedy open mic where i performed for just 5 minutes but i remember i finished the book and it was around the time where i then would after finishing the book go to do this uh, stand up comedy set and i remember then feeling nervous now that i'd finished the book and turned my attention to that and i did laugh at myself thinking um here i am nervous about standing in front of maybe 10 people telling a few jokes for five minutes and how bad could that be after just reading someone sharing their uh, harrowing story, horrific story of being in a concentration camp. And so there was definitely this moment of perspective of what I was going through was definitely nothing and even something I could be fortunate about. I wouldn't call it meaning in my suffering because it wasn't suffering, but even meaning in what I was going through um, in some way. But he does share that when we try to compare suffering Uh, that doesn't go well and he says that um he says i would like to say about this that the suffering of human beings is incommensurable real suffering fills a person completely fills their whole being so when we try to say who suffered more um really it's not a argument worth having or conversation worth having Uh, sometimes i tell my clients they they think about something like that look everyone's pain is worth attending to no matter how good your life is if you stub your toe in that moment you're like ah my toe hurts and your pain is very real and so we can't say oh no you can't feel you know your toe or you shouldn't be feeling anything because you have a good life well no it still hurts when you hit your toe and you're going to be grabbing your toe and maybe say a few words and you know you'll get through it but it doesn't mean it's not hurting so i thought that was um an important point that he was sharing that you know, we can't compare the suffering of of two different people. And so when people share that, actually, what I often sense when this comes up in therapy is that they're it's hard to hold on to their own pain, or they feel guilty about feeling bad about their life, or they're not sure if they're allowed to feel bad about it. And it's a way of getting away from their own pain. Um, but what I try to encourage them to do is to recognize their pain is real and worth attending to and it's their responsibility going back to this theme of responsibility to tend to their own pain of course doesn't mean they won't be there for other people as well but the more we take care of ourselves the better we are able to help and take care of others the old uh, analogy of when you're on an airplane you put the uh, oxygen mask on yourself first and then your child because you don't want to try to help others, help even your child, and then you become incapacitated. So taking care of ourselves does allow us to, to help take care of others as well. And your own pain is real. Another analogy I use is that if you uh, go to the hospital with a broken leg, the do- doctor doesn't come in and laugh and say, oh, the person next door has two broken legs, get out of here. They say, no, your leg's broken, we're going to help you with your pain, just like we're going to help that person doesn't mean it has to be the worst pain that we've ever seen that we are going to help. So um, you know, it's also inspiring, as I'm, you know, just some concluding thoughts on the book. When you, you know, see someone like Viktor Frankl, and I also would encourage you see, you know, there's some clips of him in interviews or giving lectures, a very inspiring speaker. But seeing individuals who have gone through the the worst of it, you know, going through a concentration camp. I know I was just saying we don't want to compare two people suffering, but we do recognize that some people have had to experience things where they saw the darkest parts. Of humanity the darkest things that humanity can do and seeing death all around them for months and even years and these individuals coming out of those experiences still as the title of the book implies saying yes to life seeing uh, the world in a positive way or seeing the positive in it finding meaning even though there is um, suffering if you recall a few months ago I read the book by Eddie Jakku which was called the happiest man on earth the beautiful life of an Auschwitz survivor. So he also um, was in the concentration camps and he wrote his um, autobiography or his memoir and saying how he, you know, he was the happiest man on earth. It doesn't mean he didn't have that pain, but he found the beauty in life and uh, found that there can still be or even more seeing that beauty, even though going through that, that darkness. So um, a highly inspiring book, a beautiful book, And if you've read Man's Search for Meaning, well, either way, if you haven't, I would recommend this book and I would recommend both of them, both Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and also the book I discussed tonight, Yes to Life in Spite of Everything by Viktor E. Frankl. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, doing a little bit of catch up. So getting into now the second book of the week Um, and this one was in a flight of starlings by giorgio parisi in a flight of starlings the wonders of complex systems and giorgio parisi is a physicist and the nobel prize winner in 2021 in physics and uh, in this book he, he shares that one of his aims is to in some ways demystify science or the scientific approach or how science is done because he thinks that science is very valuable to society, but that in some ways um, there's a crisis of science or the scientific community or trust in science and the scientific community. So I'll, I'll, I'll touch on those and things he shares in some of my own ideas. Getting to the title of the book, In a Flight of Starlings, and I know I In the last segment, gave you some homework to read a few books, and then also to watch videos of Victor Frankel's speeches or interviews. But I also highly encourage you to go to YouTube and watch videos on um, flights of starlings. So, starlings are these birds, and they can they fly together in these incredible displays called murmurations, where from the outside, it looks like, I mean, really, it looks like something out of a sci fi movie or you're seeing CGI because you'll see sometimes even it's hundreds of thousands of birds, I think, at once, maybe even more. And they fly together and they change shape and direction um, in ways that seem so coordinated and so incredible. Again, I highly recommend you to watch. Even just, I, I saw a few videos that are four or five minutes long and they were just hauntingly beautiful. You're, you know, it's almost creepy or scary, but it's beautiful at the same time. Um, You know you feel a sense of awe watching them and i saw people you know you'll see in the comments or write about how it's really an awe-inspiring experience to see them and so they uh due to changes in in climate or where they go they have been in rome more recently in recent years i think for quite a while now they've been in rome and so giorgio parisi actually um is i think he still lives in rome but i know he was uh, teaching in rome and so he when a project he worked on, and he describes in the, the first chapter, is trying to understand the flight of starlings. How do they ma- navigate and manage this incredible aerial display? And also, they, they move in these, these ways and back and forth. And then eventually, somehow, they're also, it seems like, communicating because they decide where to roost, where to spend the night and they find you know a good place and then they all descend all of a sudden into this uh one area to then spend the night and it's important where they pick because they can be um very much subject to the conditions that they're in and they can even sometimes freeze to death if they get cold so they have to make sure they pick a good place and and all that uh, there's also i saw a bbc video and it was showing the um, unfortunate side effect of having so many birds in one area. You might imagine underneath there can be incredible amounts of bird poop that then accumulates and you'd see these uh, cars just being decimated by just, you know, getting showered by uh, the droppings of the birds. And so it was actually, they were responding by trying to, there's people that were wearing hazmat suits and they go around with uh, um, loud speakers playing the alarm signal of the starlings to get them to move because they didn't want to cause destruction in certain parts of the city or cause uh, uh, so much waste to build up in those areas. But anyway, uh, but still I w- I'd highly recommend, uh, don't worry about the pooping part, watch the videos where you see the ways that they they move. It's really something uh, incredible. And so a project that he worked on, Giorgio Parisi, the author of this book, was trying to understand how do they do this? How do they move the way they do because it almost seems like it's being orchestrated there's some kind of communication but they weren't sure how and it does appear that uh, there isn't any sense of overall communication like something is being said but that they're all responding to just the ones who are closest to them around them and with that that the delays create some of the shapes or the things that you see but they're all just responding, and it's an interesting system. And so uh, as the subtitle of the book says, The Wonders of Complex Systems, uh, he talks about how by understanding uh, you know, the way science can work and the way the different fields can interact is sometimes we learn something in one field uh, or one area, and it could be illuminating to a problem or an understanding in a different field, and it can be important for us to collaborate and share information in that way. So in the first chapter, he talks about the... Uh, extensive work that they put in because they started, I think, more than 20 years ago doing this research and cameras were not as good as they are now or even maybe earlier than that. And so to try to capture, they they realized they have to do it in certain ways and certain things to figure out which birds were which. So it was an incredibly painstaking process that took a long time to get to these conclusions. Now, why does he describe all this? Well, as I was saying, he sees that we are in a crisis of science. Um, You know, sometimes we'll hear things like, do we trust the science? We know when it came to things like, or it still continues about vaccines or climate change. We hear a lot of these conversations surrounding uh, trusting the science. And I always think of it not as trusting the science, like science itself is something we have to trust or not trust, but it's trusting the scientific community. And so there's lots of elements where, Uh, trust is built and where mistrust can be unfortunately uh, inserted, where we see things, for example, if um, it's actually happened in psychology, where some professors have been uh, shown to have fraudulent data in their studies. So they published studies that became known, and then it turned out they had either manipulated, made up, done some some things to the data where um, they were we're fraudulent it wasn't actually accurate so of course that's going to sow mistrust where people think well how can we trust what uh, the scientists are telling us what the people are telling us Um, and then of course other things like how we make predictions and projections can be um, uh, affect this but also how transparent we are and that's where we get to this last part where he he says that in this book he was hoping to be transparent showing how does science happen you know sometimes we just hear about the results but we don't know the, the work that went into it, the years of developing the study and collecting the data, analyzing the data, all the things that went into coming to these conclusions to kind of, um, you know, remove the, the hood. So we see how the engine works. How are things actually happening in science? So that was one of his aims in this book was to show how are we getting to these conclusions as scientists, collaborating together. The mistakes even we make the ways we get things wrong get things right how do we make discoveries how do we come up with ideas and he shares some interesting stories even one where at the age of around i think 24 or 25 he was very close or he could have been very close to getting a nobel prize at that young age but he kind of didn't take a few steps or carry something out and later on, people got a Nobel Prize, but it was really quite right under his nose. And so there's a regret there. And he says it's kind of like a cool story, but also a sad story. I mean, lucky for him in 2021, he got his own Nobel Prize, but he shares these experiences. And in my opinion, he does a good job of showing what it's like to be a scientist and what they go through and the changes that happen. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, science is done by human beings who are fallible And actually, one of the ways that uh, science can be more rigorous and more closely uh, getting closer to the ideal of objectivity is by having more people involved. Any one of us has biases and Naomi Oreskes in her book, Why Trust Science, talks about how the scientific community, it's not that each individual has bias, of course, and the community itself can also have bias, but it gets reduced the more diverse perspectives we have looking at the same problem, the same issue. It's kind of like the biases wash out more that way, or they're less likely to be as prominent when the scientific community allows for a diversity of voices to allow itself to continue being self correcting and get closer to the truth. So in this book, we see how he is sharing these um, insights into what it's like to get to the science. And he also says As scientists, they have to be careful that sometimes they can present their findings or their theories in ways that are impossible for the lay person to understand or someone who's not very familiar, making it very esoteric. And that's not good. It doesn't serve anyone. They have to be mindful. And that's what he tries to do in this book. You know, at times he explains these things that he discovered or was working on in physics and I was reading it and I could somewhat follow, but of course I couldn't follow all of it or... Say that all of it made sense to me, but he was trying to explain complex phenomenon physics um, in ways that could be more easily understood. And I appreciated that, but he's saying that we have to be more this way in science so that people can understand. And that when we just say, well, we have this finding, take our word for it, it almost sounds like they're saying it's some kind of magic. So trust our magic. And he says that's just more likely to make people believe in other types of magic or things that are not true or real when it seems like the science almost isn't real. Uh, he had a whole chapter devoted to metaphors in science, and I thought that was an interesting one. And so often you see that people who were making scientific discoveries, metaphors help them come up with the solution to some scientific problem. Also, metaphors can be very helpful in explaining things, including scientific um, uh, issues, where if you have a good analogy, you can help explain uh, what's going on and as a psychologist I also have experienced this very often that sometimes an analogy comes to mind based on what a client is sharing and I can't know exactly where it came from within me but something resonated and that analogy comes up and at times of course it won't resonate but sometimes it could be a very deep connection that's being made there and that the client might really resonate with so the metaphor has a lot of value in helping us understand something in a different way or in a new light. So for example, I remember a client talking about being in school when they were younger and being so praised and that they were such a star student and teachers treated them differently and the students treated them differently and it was really nice in a way, of course, to be praised and you know put on this pedestal. But maybe that was the type of phrasing or thinking that I remember imagining him, this is pre-COVID days and being in the office, I remember imagining him as a little kid on top of the bookshelf in my office in a way, like as if a smaller version of him and that all the students are on the ground looking up at him. So it looks nice. But then I realized like how lonely it would also feel on that bookshelf by yourself. So you're being praised and you're being um, thought of in a certain way that of course feels good as being recognized for being so smart and intelligent and such a good student. But it also could be a very lonely and isolating experience and it resonated with that client, but there was nothing I could say this was something, um, I was using some kind of scientific judgment or some type of uh, theory. It was really just the intuition. So he he shares about the metaphors in science, but he also shares about the power of intuition in science. And also I've heard this said often in mathematics, which is um, in some ways the language of science, uh, that it's often that a mathematician or a scientist will have an intuition that this is the right solution and then they'll spend the rest of their time coming up with the intermediary steps of how this makes sense. Uh, or you know, they'll have a theorem or a mathematical theorem and even says sometimes they'll come up with the right solution, but one of the steps will be wrong and later on someone will, will correct that step along the way in showing their work, so to speak but that their intuition was still right. Of course, intuition, I I do make this point because sometimes we can get to another type of magical thinking that, for example, intuition is always right. And of course, that's not the case. But there is something about our intuition which reflects, I think, this unconscious uh, or our unconscious working on things which at times can have a deeper wisdom than something we can be aware of, so something clicks within us, some insight that we don't quite understand why. And then we, sometimes can think our way through why it is that way, but sometimes we'll have a hard time getting there. And a lot of our experiences are like that. Something feels a certain way, or we think a certain thing or feel something about someone. And it's hard to put our finger on why. And sometimes later on, we can put the pieces together, but there's great value in intuition. So there's a chapter after Metaphors in Science about how ideas are born. And he talks about the the experience that many scientists have gone through where they have a problem and then at first there's this they think about the problem then they feel stuck and then they go away from the problem and then often in this type of incubation period where they're not actively thinking about the problem sometimes maybe they're having a conversation with a colleague or something they're doing is very unrelated to the problem they were working on or had been working on and all of a sudden the insight comes to them uh sometimes in a flash but then at times afterwards it takes a lot of work to make sense of that insight so you know it's not that they necessarily have the the insight and that gives them the full solution but it might give them the ending point and now they have to to fill the in-between so i thought he did well um, to achieve his goal of sharing some of his experiences in science what he's gone through uh, as he even described at one point showing his work so we have to show our work he says as scientists so that the general public can can recognize that. Uh, you know I thought of something funny how you know, people will use their cell phone to talk about how they don't believe the science. And so it's really the science that allows them to even have that cell phone to post something on social media. But he, you know, he says how important it is for us to recognize that. Of course, technology advances with scientific advancements. They definitely go hand in hand and he thinks culture or that science has a lot of value to our culture, to our society. And it's important for scientists to do the work to make sure they maintain the trust of the greater community. So we do trust the science and trust the scientific community. So a fascinating book by a fascinating scientist. Uh, And again, highly recommend checking out the video uh, of the starlings. That was In a Flight of Starlings, The Wonders of Complex Systems by Giorgio Parisi. All right. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Azale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fayyadolokwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.